Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Kibalia. And today we actually, we've, we've sort of been having a, amongst ourselves a sneak preview conversation because our guest is Dr. Susan Friedman. And it's hard when you're with Susan not to jump the gun and start talking before the podcast begins. So we've got lots of ideas swirling around in our heads about what we want to talk about today. And I'm just going to get the ball rolling by telling a story because I like stories. And this one goes back to some of the very early days of my sharing clicker training within the horse community. It was early days, not just for getting clicker training out there, but it was early days in terms of the internet. So Facebook did not exist. A lot of these things did not exist. There was one list in the Yahoo Groups forum for clicker trainers. And it was really fun because everybody was on it. Bob Bailey was on it. Karen Pryor was on it. Everybody was on this one list, which meant that if you wanted to find out what people were saying, you only had to go to one place, which was very convenient. And then it started to splinter off because people got, they got different ideas about how things should be done. They got grumpy and they wanted to take their marbles and go go play in their own little uh, pool. And so it started to splinter and all of a sudden you had lots of different clicker training lists that you had to keep track of. Well, I was off in my own little corner doing clicker training, trying to figure out how to clicker train horses. And I wanted to communicate with the horse community. And again, there weren't that many options, but there was one list called the horseman's list, which was not about clicker training, but it was about um, it was sort of a wasn't really natural horsemanship because that was still in its infancy as well, but it was it was along those lines, and and I was on that list, and I would I would lurk and I would listen to the various questions that people sent in, and when somebody sent in a question that where I thought that they would be open to the idea of using food with horses and open to the idea of using clicker training that I would respond to their question. And I would write in a very long detailed post about what clicker training was and a little bit about its background and how you use a marker signal and how you pair it with food. And and here's how you could use it to address the, the situation that the person was writing about. And we would get back these posts that were really fun because the person would write back, my horse is so smart all in caps with lots of exclamation marks. And, and oh, his clicker training is just amazing. And, and they were just, you could, the enthusiasm, you could just feel it reverberating through the internet. It was tremendously good fun. And then there was always the post from this particular individual. He was an Australian. Doesn't matter where he was from, but he happened to be from Australia who was just bound and determined to stamp this clicker training stuff out before it got spread any further, sort of like wildfire, 
got to stamp it out because you you just you know it'll just spread and it's really this is just oof, terrible it's wrong you shouldn't be feeding food to horses you shouldn't be doing this you shouldn't be doing that it just he just it just violated every core belief that he had around horses and training horses and he probably knew very little about clicker training i'm assuming oh he knew nothing about clicker training he just knew it was horrible and and <laughs> Uh, and that it needed to be stamped out. And he would write these long diatribes. Well, I never responded to them directly, but I would make note of all the things that he was huffing and puffing about. And so I would wait until somebody else wrote in a post with a question that made it seem as though they would be open to the idea of using clicker training. And I would write an even longer post describing clicker training and what it was about and how you would use it. And in that post, I would address, but never mentioning him by name and never directly, I would address all of the things that he was huffing and puffing about. So I never addressed him directly because I knew that as the new kid on the block, that if I started to attack what he was doing directly, that he would attack me. You know, you push against, you push against someone, they're gonna push back. And I wasn't in a position to fight back directly. Not what I enjoy, it's not my style. But what I wanted to get out there was clicker training. And I didn't want, you know, if I was attacking, if I came in and said, well, what you're doing is all wrong, the way you're handling horses, and the way you're, you know, hitting horses and whatever then they would just be attacking me and we'd be in a schoolyard brawl and I would lose all of those. My horse is so smart posts. So this was a long time ago. And so Susan, one of the things that we've been talking about is how we communicate. What are we communicating? What is it that we are wanting to do when we are, I mean, we both devote so much time spreading this information about training, helping people to understand more, in your case, more about behavioral analysis and the teaching of this work. And there are all kinds of posts out there who are like this Australian who's determined to attack the work. What are some of the approaches? How do we, how do we, how do we handle this? You've brought in crucial conversations to our community. What are some of the approaches that we can take? And what is it that we need to keep in mind so that we don't find ourselves in one of those he said, she said, schoolyard brawls, but we're still able to defend our work? And we should probably explain what you meant, Alex, by you brought to our community crucial conversation. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that too, Susan. It's a book that you introduced us to. Yeah, well, um, the book Crucial Conversations, you know, there are many, many dozens and dozens of self-help books out there um, because the need is so great that give us tools to uh, navigate disagreements, high stake, high emotion kinds of uh, situations with one another. Most of us who have lived at all um, 
probably by 10 years old, have a path behind us that's strewn with failed relationships. And so Crucial Conversations is my favorite, just my personal favorite book, um, full of tools for how to try and reduce the number of failed relationships, for how to work with conversations um, that are characterized by disagreement, high stake and high emotions in a way that protects two things. Uh, one is uh, dialogue and the other is uh, the relationship that we can maintain relationships with people even when we have disagreements, high stakes and high emotions. I've heard from other folks that they have other favorites, like the power of trust is one that I remember um, Otto and his team of elephant trainers back in the day at Bush Garden saying he's he used that one. So that's something to look at. Um, so different voices connect with each of our learning histories differently. And I think if Crucial Conversations doesn't connect for you, as a powerful toolbox, then keep looking um, because there are many different, uh, different authors. Aubrey Daniels has written a lot of good books about managing relationships when the stakes are high, the disagreement is strong and um, the emotions run high. So find one that speaks to you. Uh, Brene Brown is a, a more recent contributor in that arena of, you know, really, what is, after all, the hardest thing we will ever do, and that is to uh, be as individual as we are, as our different genetic tendencies and personal learning histories have made us, the snowflakes that we are, and still get along. We've put an enormous amount of effort and our own sort of personal ethos and, and commitment to ideas. and on the internet, people, I think, go after, they don't necessarily go after ideas, they often go after individuals. So it stops being a conversation and a discussion of ideas. And it becomes instead, uh, it feels as though it would be so easy to get dragged down into the mud. What was that phrase that Michelle Obama said? You know, when they go very low, that we go high. We go higher yeah. or something like that. She's she's a a mentor, huh? Well, I would say, um, you know, that your description combined with your first question, you know, the idea for me on a good day, like the best Susan I can be, <laughs> is that we don't go after anything. We don't go after people and we don't go after ideas very often. Rather, we pursue in non-aggressive ways, discussions, debates. Um, one of the great things in the Crucial Conversations book is get curious. Before you draw conclusions, get curious. So we ask each other, you know, I'm often recommending to people when I coach them in training, um, Rather than uh, draw conclusions about the animal who's not doing what you expect, get curious. 
rather than drawing conclusions about the staff member who's not doing what you expect, get curious, have right on the tip of your tongue the question, why would a reasonable, rational individual do that, think that, teach that? And I think that if we did, the benefit would be uh, the great sharing of ideas from which we can pick and choose which resonate which, with us and which do not. But it would fill that common pool of, of information from which to then pick what is most useful to us. And I wanna say that when I hear myself thinking that way or talking that way, there are times where you draw the line because I certainly am supportive of drawing the line with um, you know, abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, abuse of animals, abuse of people according to, you know, their race, their ethnic background, drawing the line against profiling, against um, police officer abuse. Although in each one of those areas where I am willing to draw the line and not talk about the goal being um, reasoned discussion, I'm also aware that that curiosity question is going to be our best way of analyzing why do police officers behave this way so frequently? You know, why do people in power in Hollywood behave the way they do? Because if we just judge them as bad, we're not gonna get to the heart of what we do best, which is analyzing how one's contact with the environment through their lifetime produces these behavioral choices, which we are agreeing need to be, you know, we need to throw down the line and say, we will not accept this anymore. So it's not all one conversation because not all um, misbehavior is equally destructive on personal or societal um, terms. But the answer to understanding and changing behavior is often the same. We ask, what reinforces that? What are the antecedents that set these misbehaviors, so to speak, in play? And how can we replace those problem behaviors with new repertoires? How can we bring in our constructional philosophy and construct new repertoires um, so that we don't have to face these things on a societal level anymore. So some um, going after situations are more important than others. Those that are very destructive, I'm also, I feel is not about staying calm, collective and, and not jumping into the fray. And others I think, you know, are very important to have restraint, my, my word of the year, restraint in all things, um, and to be strategic with our science to say, what is reinforcing this? Get curious. What antecedents set this in play? And what's the behavior we want instead? And how can we help facilitate that? The other thing I just wanted to say, I jotted down when you were talking, Alex, is that the idea is not to escape criticism, right? Negative reinforcement 
is not going to be our right. most productive response to criticism. I think we need to balance um, looking at the criticism in a very confident, reasoned way to say, is there something that can improve what I teach, what I practice, and how I train in the criticism? Because after all, science itself is, we tout it as better than personal recipes because it self-corrects. And the criticism not only comes in debate in our journals and at our conferences, but in our repetition of studies, which is kind of a criticism itself. When we repeat studies to see whether or not they hold up on replication, we're looking to disprove something, so to speak. So learning to be open and um, analytic in the face of criticism is important too. And we can ask, how can I criticize in a way that gets my critical viewpoint into the light of day without knocking down things that we want to honor or keep upright? Right. Having been trained in the sciences, what I know is that nothing is written in stone. There's always this revising and expanding and bringing in new pieces so that you're, you're constantly uh, expanding ideas, not trying to contract right. them down to right. this is the dog. Which is a very special kind of skill set, both to maintain in your own behavior um, and to encourage in others. So it's not about, do we want less criticism? Because that, you know, is the specter of a Trumpian totalitarianism sort of thing, you know, where some pigs are more equal than others. We don't want to ever reduce reasoned criticism, um, but we can spend time, and that's where crucial conversations come in, to discussing and building our skills in how we criticize so that the criticism really meets the end goal, which is improvement in what we understand about how behavior works and how we apply it. And I would love to substitute criticism questions. And maybe, you know, just for my own, in terms of the, the conversations that, that I enjoy most, there are, it's a questioning process. It's not saying, well, this is, this is flat out wrong, but I have questions about this and here they are. And through those questions, we both come to a deeper understanding of what's being said and a deeper understanding perhaps of the other person's reservations, the other person's own assessment of a particular approach the questions keeps it, I think, on a much, um, much more constructive plane than criticism. Do you have an expression in English, not throwing the baby with the bathwater? We do. I even know the derivation of that. Do you know that? Because that, that, so it used to be that when, you know, before, before modern times where you turned on a faucet, you know, the, that you had your bath once a week and 
and the water was put into the basin that you were going to bathe in. And the first person that got into the bath was the person who was highest on the hierarchy and then sort of all the way down to the baby. And so by the time the youngest in the household were getting into this tub, it's sort of, the water was pretty brown and you could easily lose the baby oh in gosh. the bath water. These aphorisms are often, you know, they don't meet our sensitive standards like killing two birds with one stone is one that I find myself trying to yeah, replace. Right. But that that one comes to mind as well. And yet sometimes babies need to go with the bath water. That's why it's a terrible, a terrible aphorism. Sometimes <laughs> ideas just need to, to be jettisoned. And that's what I was saying before is, you know, it's a very complicated planet. It's complicated to be human, to have as much power to influence as we do as a species, because we're spinning all of these plates you know, along a continuum of severity, when do I throw down and say enough? I'll use my punishment power if I need to, to stop that versus no, here's where I, I can have restraint and be considerate, considerate of these new ideas and really, you know, rake through the coals they've produced from the flame and find what's the value. Sounds as though we're talking about the hierarchy. Uh, we're talking about many aspects of my work and many aspects of other people's yes. work who I've, who I've criticized. So why am I very vocal about and punishing towards uh, criticizing Caesar Milan, but I'm respectful and careful mm -hmm in criticizing Jesus Rosales Ruiz, you know? So it's really not just one thing, it's many, many things. We all have a right. body of work and we all evaluate the relevance, the validity and the usefulness of other people's work. Uh, when do we bring out one repertoire that is harsh and the other repertoire that is full of curiosity? and softness, you know, I've asked Jesus many questions as an example. Thank you, Jesus, for being my counterpoint um, here. Many questions about why would you say that? Are you saying, whereas I've never asked Caesar Milan, why would you hang that dog at the end of that lead? Right? So that's what I'm saying when I, when I say this is complicated and this is not going to be simple. Um, discussions about how to disagree well is are not simple discussions. They're, you know, and and what are we disagreeing on situates you on the continuum of how forceful you're willing to have your disagreement be. And I'm mindful of that because I often, I mean, my a, a great value you can see in my even in my body language and my and my voice, all the things that I have some control over that being slow and calm. These are, th th this body language is expressing my values about behaving. Yeah. And, and even that's criti right. criticizable. Remember when Kathy, <laughs> when Kathy Sadeo said to me, you know, I object to you saying that calm is the highest value. Well, isn't that a great laugh? Of course, Kathy Sadeo <laughs> with all of her beautiful, 
energy in how she teaches, but object to my saying, always be calm, right? So these are complicated issues. Um, the hierarchy is getting some evaluation by people who feel that it's too recipe oriented, that it uh, dissuades people invalidly from using negative reinforcement as a first tool. Um, and that's an interesting thing for us to talk about for sure. My choice would be to talk about it with curiosity, filling the common pool of information. Um, and so your very first question was, how do you deal with, you know, uh, rancorous, let's call it rancorous criticism. And my, my answer is on a good day, you know, the best Susan, not on a tired, bad day, Susan, on a good day, Susan, a mentor, Susan, what you do with rancorous criticism is you get out your rake, you wait for the fire to be spent. You stand quietly while the fire blazes until eventually it loses fuel. And then you get out your rake and you rake through the coals trying to find the embers that have value. And I think there is value in picking up that one ember, which is for are there the question, are there different ways to apply negative reinforcement? And are they really all equal such that they end up on the use very rarely part of the hierarchy? Or can we start to discriminate different um, situations where negative reinforcement might be used such that we have one class of uses that are closer to positive reinforcement than to punishment. If you're my esteemed colleague, Jean Donaldson, you say, no, there are no uses of negative reinforcement that should preempt systematic desensitization, counter conditioning and positive reinforcement. If you're Susan Friedman, you might say, let me think about that for a minute. And Given that space for reasoned discussion, I think there is something important to get. There is an ember in those coals worth pulling out and talking about together. Absolutely. Particularly for those of us who work with horses and put leads on That's our right. horses and ride our horses because we are using tactile communication. Yeah. Pressure and release, pressure absolutely. And you and I talked about that years right. ago when we taught and at Cavalia, all three yep. of us. Right. And how that is taught and the history that the horse brings to it and the history that the person brings to it all influence how it is perceived by each individual. And it's not my place to say how a horse is perceiving when I, when I slide down a lead rope, I didn't, I'm not the one who gets to say to the horse, this is really nice. You're going to love it any more than when I hold an apple out to a horse and I say, this is reinforcing for you, even though you're going to spit it out of your mouth because you've never been offered apples before. But this is positive reinforcement. You will be reinforced by it. Let me just interrupt there um, because I do have a, a different a component of what you're describing for, for you to respond to. Yeah. It's not up to us to decide for another organism what is appetitive, a positive experience versus what right. is an aversive experience. But we do read their body language and make some very reliable inferences. 
So when yes. I use pressure and release on a horse, it, it, I need to be aware that there's a negative reinforcement component to that procedure. And I need to be educated in that individual horses, horses in general, and then that individual horses body language to give me some indication. So do you remember that when I said to you, but you're teaching the horse, the pee off at the wall and the, and the horse has no avenue of escape. And you said, come here, be my horse. And you taught me to move with pressure and release in the Cavalia arena. And then you said to me, was it aversive? And like these little hearts came shooting out of my brain, like the emoji, right? And I said, no, it was really lovely. <laughs> it was great to have you move me to teach me a, a certain pattern of, of behavior through pressure and release in a way that was more like dancing with my husband than it was being strapped you know, down in a dentist chair. So these are all of the amazing things we have to talk about when we're on planet Earth. Right. And we need to have the time and uh, the calm, I would say, with due respect to Kathy, to have those discussions. And, and we may need some new labels. Absolutely. You know, because it may not be useful or sufficient to call it all negative reinforcement. Absolutely. And, uh -oh. and I agree. We need to think that through. Now, for my whole career, I've been on the general side of very cautious, negative about new coinage, um, because no, the pro proliferation of terminology threatens to add to a Tower of Babel. And it's hard enough for yes. the science sisters yes. to understand each other, you know, at brunch as it is. But I do agree. And my first experience with it was when Ken asked me about, actually, Barbara Heidenreich asked me if I would write an email to a list about the least doing a behavioral analysis of the least, least reinforcing stimulus, now called the least reinforcing situation or signal it's changed over the years what the s stands for as i think those trainers have tried to find a term that would be most easily recognizable by lay people and not technical so that it wasn't off-putting as the word stimulus may be um so stimulus situation scenario i think is where it is now um, in an effort to find a language that speaks to the most people, which I think is uh, always part of the uh, burden of a teacher and mentor is speaking the language of the people you're teaching. Yeah. Should we describe briefly the procedure that they were, was creating this, what do we the call debate, it? The discussion, yeah. Um, and then later, Ken Ramirez asked me when I was first at Clicker Expo to take a look at his use of it and see if I could describe it in behavioral terms. Um, before I explain what it is, it is an interesting example of, of reason debate. So that's what my first experience with new coinage, where I had to kind of come up with a little rubric about when is new coinage reasonable versus when it's not. And it was pretty simple. It was, do we have a terminology for this already? 
and do we not? And if we don't have a terminology for this particular combination of, of procedures linked together in this way, then making um, a new coin, coinage for it, a new term for it would make sense to me. Sorry for that phone ringing and it's for some reason really hard to turn it off. So podcast in real life, your phone rings. Um, yes. So that was where I first came across in my animal work, having to think to myself, do we have something in behavior analysis that covers this particular chain of procedure, this procedural chain? And if we don't, does it make sense to have a new term? And then I realized so many of our terms in training came from special ed, not from basic research in a laboratory. So there is, there is a history of new coinage to describe procedures out in the, in the wild where we feral trainers are working compared to the laboratory, <laughs> right? We sometimes need new words and sometimes it even feeds back to the lab work. Um, but thank you for letting me just empty the buffer on, on where I was going with new coinage, uh, least reinforcing scenario. Is a, is a procedural chain when an animal that has shown fluency responding to a cue doesn't respond to that cue, what do you do? So first, I think of Tim Sullivan, who taught me another great question. You know, it all comes down to building a repertoire of questions. He said, what, what problem are you trying to solve, right? And Carl Cini says that often as well, is, you know, the procedures follow the need is what Tim added. I love that. Isn't that profound? It's so useful. So stick that in your bag. Yeah. We need no, to have definitely. a treat bag that has a compartment for new ideas, right? Put it in there. Yeah. Or just a great, great phrase, a great way of phrasing yeah. that. Yeah, I love that. it's beautiful. Yeah. And then Carl Cini has always said, when I bring him new things and I'm excited, he looks at me, he listens patiently. And then he says, what problem does that solve? So between the what problem does it solve and what need is being um, fulfilled by the procedure, we have a really nice little rubric there about new coinage. Yes. So when you have an animal that responds to a cue, for example, in the video I show that Ken generously gave to me, um, he has the sea lion and he says, um, gives the cue to lay down and Ty just looks at him. And yet Ty has a long history of repetitions of successfully responding to the cue line down. Yes. What do you do? That's the need that Tim Sullivan mentions. That's the need that we have for a procedure to address. If you requeue, maybe you will requeue once, but if you re no problem, maybe you gave the cue when the animal wasn't ready to receive it. They weren't looking at you for information. They were looking at another sea lion or a tractor went by, whatever. Repeat the cue, no harm done. But then do you repeat it a third time or a fourth time or a fifth time? Every time that you repeat the cue that it does not set the occasion for the behavior consequence loop, to use what I've learned from you, yeah. You threaten to drain the cue of its evocative value. It got its yes. evocative value because the reinforcer not only strengthens behavior, but also strengthens the evocative value of the antecedent cue, yes. right? 
putting a yes. whole lot of pearls together here. Oh, you did indeed. It's very exciting. Yes, I love that. Very clever. It's the most delicious science on the planet. Yes. So here we are. I mean, those poor geneticists and brain <laughs> scientists, if they only knew. <laughs> so you don't keep asking for that science-based yep. reason. What do you do? So now we have a need for a procedure to respond to when an animal who is fluent at a behavior isn't performing the behavior on cue. And the least reinforcing stimulus was a, was a shot at an answer to what do you do? They didn't want to positively punish, hit the animal, as we know people in our way past right. have done, pick up a two by four, throw something at the animal, children as well as with animals in human care. Um, so their understanding at the time was a timeout would require collecting everything up, controlling everything in the environment so that no reinforcers were available to the animal, negative punishment, withholding all opportunity to reinforcers. And they felt that they couldn't do that. Now, my special ed understanding of timeout is different. It's not about controlling all possible reinforcers. So we didn't run into this problem. We figured we could just remove the kid from the class. And if the class was very reinforcing, it would be okay even if there were some reinforcers available in the corner, as there were for me in school. But the SeaWorld trainers, as I understand, and I've interviewed five or six of the originators of this term, um, explained to me was their understanding was timeout wouldn't work because even if they took their bucket of fish and left, there would be the other sea lions, there would be swimming activities, there would be toys in the pool, there would be leftover fish floating. So timeout would not be a good response to the animal not responding to a previously fluent cue. So what they did was they built a bundle of procedures. They did a mini pause for a few seconds, which is quite timeout-ish. Mm. If their attention is a reinforcer, then pausing is withholding their lively interaction. That might reduce not responding. And then after the mini pause, if the animal had shown a very particular topography of behavior, that is the animal stayed near the trainer, ready to receive information. So that might include eye contact, listening, uh, or shoulder orientation forward, whatever the topography of calm, attentive, waiting for information would be, depending on the species you're working with then that would be the first reinforceable behavior. Boom, hit, hit it with a fish. And then you could repeat the cue as Ken does in his video, and then he gets the lay down. Or you might ask for different cues, different behaviors offer different cues. You might end the session. All of those different branches from the mini pause and the animal's response to that mini pause. So I just want to finish up by saying it's a complicated bundle of procedures to explain quickly. And I may have left some important things out. Uh, Al Kordowski is my thermometer 
if it of if I've said all the important components or I haven't, he'll let me know, is that that calm, attentive behavior the animal should respond with in response to your pause is something you teach them first. So you don't just go in to do LRS with a naive animal. This is an animal who over repetitions, you have extended the duration for which they understand that you giving no information is a cue for them to stay attentive, information and reinforcers are coming. So that reminds me exactly of your bundle of procedures called the grownups are talking. Yeah. You teach the horse that when the adults are oriented somewhere else, the trainers are oriented somewhere else and their hands are in a particular base position that that should convey to the horse what you do now is wait for more information, calm and attentive. It's different than the cue for go out, Right. The, the paddock is yours. This cue is hang with me. I've got something to say to you, but I'm not ready. Wait, which reminds me of exactly the same thing we teach children when we say wait. And the key to that is the word teach. We have taught it. We have put it into repertoire in advance right. of when we need it. And that's, that that's right. ties in as well to this whole conversation now that's so active around taking a constructional approach to training where we are building repertoires. Uh, you that's build right. the behaviors that that's you're going right. to need. And I appreciate very much you're saying a constructional because I'm a little bit worried about what we convey. Isn't it funny how precise our words need to be to convey our intention? That when we say the constructional, it lends itself to being interpreted as a particular bundle of procedures. When a constructional approach is bigger than any one procedure, it's not just about negative reinforcement, where negative reinforcement may be the least intrusive, effective procedure with an animal, depending on the behavior they bring to us. We're talking about a constructional approach, which is really about a mindset. It's a philosophy of behavior change that is best described as building repertoires rather than eliminating as perhaps a doctor would when eliminating ringworm on a dog. We're talking about not eliminating problem behaviors, but constructing repertoires to replace them. And that's fundamental in behavior analysis to our three-tier approach where we do our ABC of the problem. Then we ask, how, what does the animal already know that could be used as a replacement for the same reinforces the problem produced? And then what new skills, what new repertoires should be constructed? And that's the basis with which we do, that's our worldview with which we do all of our behavior change programs. Yeah, I wanna, I wanna um, emphasize something here. You, you just touched on it, but um, you know, when I took your LLA course, Susan, um, I learned the importance 
of functional assessment. I learned this from you. It was very important um, notion that I got out of the course. And I, I remember, and we did a few podcasts on this. And I remember, you know, the expression you said when you said, not doing a functional assessment is like just throwing spaghetti on the wall. And, you know, what I remembered in my own words was how counterproductive this could be. And so I really, really uh, got from you the importance of functional assessment. So I want to hear you on how does functional assessment relates to the hierarchy of procedures. Mm -hmm. Let's begin because not everybody is going to be familiar with the terminology. Yeah, so, so we should probably define both functional assessment and the hierarchy, actually. I always hate to interrupt our conversations with Susan, and especially this one. We're weaving so many fascinating threads into this tapestry of a conversation. But Dominique's question has given me a good stopping place, and Susan has given us all a lot to think about. I've been taking detailed notes as I do the editing, and I was particularly struck by Susan's wonderful response to how do you deal with a rancorous conversation. I loved her metaphor. You wait for the fire to burn down, then you rake the coals to find the embers that have value. There's so much power in that, because often it is through the challenges to our work that we come to a deeper understanding and, and, and we develop better techniques. That was one of the things that I've always valued in my relationship with Dominique. Uh, when I was working with the horses at the retirement farm, Dominique always had questions about why I was doing what I was doing. And they were good questions. They were probing questions. And, and they were important questions to to ask and to think about. And, you know, after the day's work, we would, whenever possible, we would sit for hours into the evening talking about training. And even though we didn't always come from the same starting point, we were able to maintain a really great, great dialogue, as you can see, because that was one of the reasons we wanted this podcast, because we wanted to keep the dialogue going. We wanted to keep the, the conversation going. And we've managed to do it through a great many podcasts. So here we are still talking. And that's a sign of really good conversations. And so that was one of the things we talked about with Susan. And then there was that discussion of labels and new terminology. And the question was, you know, when do you add a new label? And so what Susan had, had distilled from that is the question that you ask is, what is the problem that you're trying to solve? And then to remember that the procedure will follow the need. I loved that. And there are so many other gems, which is why I want to stop us here, to give us all time to think about what has already been said before we dive in and add even more. So next week, we're going to weave some more golden threads into our conversation. 
And I think you're really going to enjoy the direction that we had. There were so many important ideas that Susan really brought to the forefront. Things that, that have been swirling around that really need to be said about how we maintain dialogue and build solid relationships. So that's what we had to look forward to next time. So have fun with your horses. <laughs>